Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Canon Things Podcast. Today, I have a special guest on. Her name is Elliot, and we talked a lot about her decision to become child-free and just the philosophy behind that. So I wanted to start off today with a quote. The darker picture is always the correct one. When you read the history of the world, you're reading a saga of bloodshed and greed and folly, which is the most impossible to ignore. And yet we imagine that the future will somehow be different. And I know that a lot of what we're going to be talking about here on this episode today is going to be somewhat controversial, so let's just remember to put on our philosopher thinking caps and to keep an open mind. And if even if you completely disagree, then you can let me know. And I would say we should do a podcast and you can just tell me about why you believe the other side. Uh, with that being said, I'm going to have Elliot introduce herself here to start off the podcast and we'll go from there. Uh, well, I'm 20 years old and I'm living in New Zealand currently. Uh, I was born in Australia and I moved down to New Zealand about four years ago. Um, I'm currently at university, so I'm studying um, at a flight school to become a pilot. Um, you might notice a um, bit of an accent, <laughs> obviously, because as I said, I'm from Australia. So, um, yeah, if you miss anything, definitely uh, tell me to repeat myself because I get it quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll be mostly okay. A pilot, though, that's pretty cool. Yeah, um, it, it took me a little while to decide what I wanted to do. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I always flopped around on really weird ideas. Like I wanted to be a paleontologist for probably a good three or four years. Um, nice. <laughs> so, but because I live in Australia, my family lived in a lot of different states. So I was often going um, between where I lived in New South Wales over to South Australia and then on up to Queensland as well. So we flew a lot. Um, you know, at least three or four times a year. And that that kind of wow. um, built up um, my experiences with flying from, yeah, probably from ages like two all the way through to now when I'm flying internationally between New Zealand and Australia. So um, about four years ago, I was in high school. How long have you been from New Zealand? Like how long have you lived in New Zealand? Um, so, yeah, it's four years now. Um, and, yeah, um, We'd be flying between New Zealand and Australia once or twice a year um, to see family and stuff like that. My dad flies a lot for work. So, you know, dropping him off the airport was one of the best things, you know, to do on um, on like a Monday morning or something like that at, you know, 5.30 a.m. Um, and you liked doing that? Yeah, I loved it. My mum hated it. Um, <laughs> she hated getting up early. But I'm a yeah. night owl, so I also hate getting up early. But... The only time I will get up early is to catch a flight because I, I just love it so much. Yeah, it's definitely a really cool thing. I haven't really talked to that many people who are pilots. So how long is the school? Um, the way I'm doing it is I'm getting a degree. So I'm getting a bachelor's degree. Um, it's three years. And um, so I do two years of flying. And then in my third year, I get to decide whether I'm going to do an instruction rating, which means another year of flying, or I'm going to do um, a theory year where I basically do, it's kind of a bit like a master's, but a little bit more structured. Gotcha. So how long have you, like, so you've been wanting to be a pilot since you were two years old, that early? Um, I didn't know it at the time. I just enjoyed flying. Um, I never, my mum never had any problems taking me on planes or anything. I um, got sick a couple of times, <laughs> but, um, yeah, as like, as a really young baby, like a toddler and even as a young kid, I didn't really have many troubles on planes. Um, there's no screaming, crying, you know, the whole, the whole nine yards. Right. 
<laughs> What's the career path like for I a pilot? What will you be doing after school? Um, so after I finish uni, um, I will have, um, I will have two licenses, a tap rating, um, and possibly an instruction rating. Haven't decided whether I want to be an instructor yet or not. Um, but basically out of this flight school, yeah, you can either be an instructor and you can um, work at a school to teach other students once you've graduated, or you can um, go to airlines and say, hey, look, I just graduated. Um, these are my grades. I think I'm great. You should definitely hire me. And then you see how you go, really. <laughs> Classic interview questions. <laughs> yeah. Just the way that you said that was so confident. You're like, here you go. <laughs> I mean, it is, it's kind of how you have to be um, in the Western world when you're a pilot, because um, the airlines, they're already very well consolidated. So they have their networks, they have oh. their pilots, they know who they want flying their aircraft. Um, so there aren't a lot of jobs to go around for new graduates. So a lot of them end up in places um, in Africa, like if you go to um, go fly in Brazil or Zimbabwe or somewhere, you know, really weird like that, because it's not safe to fly. They don't pay you very much, but you get hours and hours is like, hours is like reputation basically. So you might have to work for a couple of years in like a third world country flying airplanes until another big company will take you on. Yeah, I could end up doing that. Um, I'm, I don't mind. I think it'd be a great adventure to go live in Africa for three years yeah. and fly, you know, Vietnam war grade DC threes or something like <laughs> that. Um, yeah. And fly these little you know, dusty little um, pieces of shit around. <laughs> Right. You know, I'm, well, I'm, then you're probably your chance of crashing is so much higher over there. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, one of my instructors um, at the school, he had a friend who was working in Africa, um, and this guy was flying the air caravan, which is um, it's a kind of aircraft, and it's it is, it's massive, and it it doesn't handle very well. It's literally like putting wings on a caravan and trying to fly it. Wow. And this guy, he's, he flies this aircraft, you know, he flies, you know, five or six legs a day. He's working kind of 12 hour days, six days a week kind of thing. Um, and he, he's doing great sleep either. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, he's getting heaps of hours. He's flying, you know, constantly. Um, and on his last day at the, um, the airline quasi airline that he's working at in Africa, um, <laughs> He um, he gets a special load, which is um, he's supposed to be carrying detonators. Oh no! Yeah, so um, he they but they have this rule right, so they can't fl fly the detonators and the explosives on the same. It's understandable because if something happens and mm -hmm. a detonator ignites and touches some explosives, then the whole plane's <laughs> going up in smoke. Right. But, um, yeah, he gets off. He gets off the aircraft um, after finishing up his paperwork and doing all his checks at the destination airport. Um, gets off and he sees the the crew unloading the back of the aircraft or the cargo, and he sees one carton come off and it says detonators clearly stamped across the side, and then he sees the next carton come off, and stamped along the side is danger explosives. 
So on this plane, he Whoa. was carrying both the detonators and the explosives for something like a three or four hour flight. Man, imagine knowing that before you started flying. Yeah, see, the problem <laughs> is, they're supposed to... I can't believe at least it didn't like blow up in midair. Yeah, because if anything happens, you know, you have um, an electrical spark or have a bit of turbulence and stuff gets rocked around a bit, um, you know, mm -hmm. your, your whole plane's gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be crazy. Do, is that common for uh, like American pilots to have to go fly in different countries? Um, yes, the largest um portion of pilots that have to go over to yeah to third world countries to fly is actually british pilots um uh, so you find do they have stricter laws or what? um it's just how the british airlines work because in the eu um your your low-cost carriers which are the airlines that usually hire younger more less experienced pilots they um they're spread out over the european union so if you're living in, um, if you're in the United Kingdom, it's kind of harder to get a job with one of those low-cost carriers because, yeah, you might end up uh, in France or um, really random. Um, and, France yeah, British Airways, yeah, <laughs> you know, end up in a, in a backpackers in central France. <laughs> but, um, huh. Yeah, British Airways is such a... Um, it's such an icon for the EU, so it's really hard to get into it. Um, so these pilots, to build up their hours, because they're all aiming to get into, you know, Air France, um, British Airways, all these really top-level flag carriers, they have to go to the limits, basically, to get these immediate hours after they graduate, because otherwise they just go nowhere. Whereas um, in the US... How many hours is it? Oh, it really depends. You usually graduate... Um, with between 200 and 500 hours, which is like peanuts. Um, and yeah. if you want to get into even a basic airline, is they still prefer you to have 1,000 to 2,000 hours. Hmm. I mean, then if you're looking... That's a lot of flying time. Oh, yeah, it's a lot. And that's just really basic, like second officer position. You get paid 30 grand a year and you have no health insurance or anything. Um, but if you want to be a captain and, you know, you're getting top level spot, you get 150 grand a year, full health benefits, mm -hmm. you know, you're set for life. You could retire at 50. Um, mm -hmm. these people are looking at, um, over their careers, those of thousands of hours, you know, some, some pilots end up with 40,000 hours once they end up, once they finish, um, and they've all got you know, Jeez. eight to 10,000 hours in a specific aircraft as well, which is what makes them valuable. So it's, it's very convoluted. <laughs> yeah. You know, one thing that I would be terrified of if I was flying even over Australia is if your plane goes down, but you live, then you got to survive out there for a while. Especially if you go over in the jungle, like in Africa, you go down in the middle of Africa and then you're surrounded by like 50 miles of jungle and nobody knows where the plane is. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, we have heaps of regulations which specify the types of safety equipment we have to have in case, yeah, you're flying around in Costa Rica and you get an engine fire, you shut mm -hmm. down your engine and you have to, you know, ditch your aircraft in the middle of the jungle somewhere. 
Um, so yeah, you have to carry specialized locator beacons, which can um, communicate with satellites. Um, you have to be able to broadcast on certain frequencies so that you can um, actually talk to people over the radio. Um, it's, it's a whole, <laughs> a whole thing. <laughs> That's cool. Cause a lot of, cause there used to be the show that I really liked that I used to watch. It was like, I shouldn't be alive. That was the title. And a couple of them were about people crashing over the jungle or over the dead somewhere random and like a couple people surviving. And then them just, it was back in like the eighties or nineties. So when they would crash, they didn't have communication equipment to go out. So they basically had to go find their way out. Cause if they're in the middle of the Amazon or something and then you know, and like they, maybe they blew off course or something, then nobody's going to find them ever. So their best bet is to hike through the jungle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially, yeah, in the jungle, you can't see an aircraft crash there because the trees just swallow it all up. Um, right. So yeah, back and then it in, rains and then there goes your fire. Yeah, definitely. So back in the seventies and eighties, yeah, if your plane crashes in the middle of nowhere, it's um it's basically it's on you to try and get out of there alive because it's going to take authorities possibly a month to locate where the aircraft actually crashed depending on what kind of information they already have to go about mm -hmm. but nowadays with all that other stuff but when you look at that about, and then, you could probably get found pretty quick yeah absolutely like um because nowadays you know the kinds of transmitters we have they actually record your last known position. So if it fails, um, they send that to the satellite, which broadcasts it to um, databases and cent um, centers, which have the information. So if it's needed um, by any search and rescue rescue operations, then they can um, access that information and they can say, well, an hour ago, this aircraft was mm -hmm. um, at this location over the Pacific Ocean. So we'll start there. Okay, so within piloting, it says here that only 5% of airline pilots globally are women. Is Do you find that about accurate? Um, yeah, it sounds about right. Um, the problem is the lag when it comes to putting pilots through training and then they're getting into the early start of their career and then moving forwards until they get to actual airlines. So it could it just take, take such a long time. Yeah. So the statistics don't actually change um, until, you know, 10 or 15 years later, because I'm seeing, you know, more and more women are going into, um, into flight training. Like in my school, for example, um, there are two female instructors out of about 15 or 20. Um, there are three females in my class, but my class is about 41 people. So it's a massive class. Um, and there are more females that are in um, the later stages of training in the school as well. But the problem is, is these people won't actually get into statistic. Yeah, won't show um, the people that are um, still in training and still in the early stages of moving into their career. Do not all of them end up becoming like big airline pilots? Do they just quit before that actually happens? It is possible to say that. Yeah, and being a woman as well. Um, there are other things that you have to consider as, um, in terms of, you know, what kind of family you want, what kind of future you want. And, you know, I'm kind of feeling the urge to have some kids now. And that just, that pretty much destroys mm -hmm. your, your career as a pilot. Right. Cause there's no way you could be a pilot with 
having to raise um, kids? Unfortunately, not really. It's just how demanding the job is. Um, and there are many reasons as to how, um, how children can directly and indirectly affect employment and even just functioning as a pilot. Right, like getting enough. Sleep. Yeah, that's that's one of the things. Um, because the schedules as a pilot are just all over the place. Um, even as a student, um, there are a lot of times where I'm getting up at four or four thirty in the morning. Yeah, so I'm doing my preparation. I'm sitting in the flight school. It's middle of winter and it's dark, um, and I'm writing out paperwork so that I can get in the plane by eight and you know be out on the tarmac and. Man. Get going. And you, you said that you're kind of more of a night owl, or at least you used to be. Does that make it really difficult for those mornings? It does, absolutely. Um, the flat school is pretty, yeah, it's open from 6 a.m. in the morning till about, usually about 6 or 7 p.m. at night, sometimes later, depending on um, who's flying. Um, but yeah, I. It took me a lot of while to get used to it. And even then, I still struggle quite a bit because all the classes yeah. start in the morning as well. So every every day I have lectures, they start at 8 a.m. It was, it was definitely a bit of a shock yeah. to the system. <laughs> yeah, I'm the exact same way. Like for me, going to bed before 2 a.m. and waking up before 10 is really hard. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I find it's also a struggle because I have a, um, a longer sleep pattern. So I tend to spend 10 um, or 11 hours in bed every night. Um, so yeah, having to get up at 4.30 a.m., I can't get to sleep 10 hours before that. So I end up going to bed at 8, laying there for two hours, and then eventually getting some sleep. Mm -hmm. And my alarm goes off at 4.30, and I feel like shit. <laughs> yeah. So when you say 11 hours, does that include the, the hours to actually fall yeah, asleep? Yeah, so um, usually it takes me a little while to fall asleep, and then I find I wake up um, towards the end in, you know, the 6th, 7th, and 8th um, REM cycles. Um, towards the end, there, I, I tend to wake up um, when I'm in the REM sleep, and then I'll go back to sleep and wake up again, and it's kind of, you know, I'll do that a few times before I end up actually waking up properly, then I'll lay in bed for another hour, and then I'll get up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's got to make it really tough because, you know, I used to work this warehouse job and the shift started at 5 a.m. So I would have to be out of the house at 4.30. So really I have to be up at like 4 a.m. to go yeah, to work yeah. until 4 p.m. And then I would have to like um, go to bed at 8 p.m., 9 p.m., and it was impossible for me to fall asleep before like 11. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it took me a while to really, even just getting up for the 8 a.m. lectures. Um, yeah, I really had to kind of force myself to, to go to bed at a specific time, you know, lights out, phone away. Um, and yeah, that was kind of a mm -hmm. struggle. Yeah, I think it's just your circadian rhythm. Everyone's got a different version of it. I think both of ours are kind of more of that later cycle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the aviation industry, particularly, there's been a lot of study um, in the human factors area on um, how sleep rhythms affect pilots. So because a lot of pilots are doing, they might do a night shift and then they'll do a day shift and then they'll do three more nights and they have a day off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. That's why I've already said it. That's why I brought up sleep once or twice already, just because it is such an important factor. It contributes to quite a lot of pilot error. 
Um, mm -hmm. There are quite a few incidents that I can think of off the top of my head where pilots were fatigued for a range of reasons, often, you know, being sick or not having enough rest days or, yeah, just um, their roster is completely whack. So, so you know, they have mm -hmm. to be sleeping at 2 p.m. in the afternoon so they can get up um, and be active at 8 p.m. and fly overnight. But, um, yeah, that's, that's one of the reasons why it can be difficult for... Um, for women who want to be mothers. Also, um, a really major um, impact of being a mother on the medical side. Of it. So in order to be a pilot, you have to pass uh, medical exams every every year for commercial pilots. Um, and once you get over the age of 40, it's every six months. So um, I did mine in October of last year, full blood test. Um, and then I go to a doctor and they do a physical exam, they do ECGs, you know, make sure my heart's all right, there's no heart defects, um, they check my cholesterol, they check my BMI, um, quite a range of stuff. And then afterwards, you have to go to the optometrist um, and they do a full eye exam, basically poke and prod you and shine lights on your eyes. And um, it's mm -hmm. not enjoyable. <laughs> but yeah, um, doing this every year, if you have a medical problem, say in pregnancy or childbirth, um, for example, you end up with high blood pressure. It was funny that you called that a problem. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a bit biased. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. If, um, so, so pregnancy and childbirth would create other issues like what? Absolutely. So um, a really common side effect of pregnancy is um, hypertension or high blood pressure. And high blood pressure is a massive issue um, in the aviation industry because it affects um, how your gut um, isn't able to pump blood as well. It's not as efficient. Your lungs aren't as efficient, and your brain isn't as efficient either. Um, and a lot of a lot of medications for high blood pressure actually come with side effects, which are also dangerous to pilots. So there's there's no middle ground here. Right. So they basically have to, if you have high enough blood pressure, you can't be a pilot. Yep, exactly. There are, there's a massive list of um, conditions which can get you disqualified from a medical certificate. What other ones come from pregnancy? Um, diabetes can come from pregnancy. And really? that's a disqualifying condition. Yep. Hmm. I didn't know that. Also, yeah, if you have any issues with circulation, that's a massive one. Um, also, if you have hormonal imbalances afterwards that can affect um, your mood or your cognitive ability, um, if it's a large enough imbalance and it has to be treated with enough medication, then, um, yeah, your medical examiner can just go nuts. So you said that you were a bit biased towards pregnancy. What did you mean? Um, I'm staunchly child-free. Um, I've only Stantly. recently, yeah, I've only recently kind of come to the conclusion that I, I'm just really not, not into children at all. Um, I always knew it. I always <laughs> knew that I didn't, didn't really like kids. Um, don't really understand them. Don't really feel comfortable with them, but it's, you know, the last few months where I've gone, I, I can't see myself being a mother. Are those the main two reasons, like that you don't really get along with kids and that you want to be a pilot? Um, those are 
two of uh, quite a long list of reasons, actually. <laughs> oh, there's more? All right, I want to yeah. hear this rant, because, I mean, Here for example, just for me, I don't really know for sure. Like, I, I definitely dip my toes in it, and there are a lot of good things that I can definitely understand why people would want to be child-free, but I haven't really had a conversation with somebody who is, like, is very anti ch having children, at least in their own lives. Yeah, yeah. Um, the first indicator for me was, was yeah, just not really liking children. Um, I know my mum always tells me that when I was in primary school, um, you know, when I was like five to eight, I hated being in classrooms with, you know, 30 other kids because um, <laughs> they, they just used to annoy me so much. Apparently I used to cry about how loud they were um, and I used to get really worked up because, you know, kids, you know, run and scream and do all sorts of bad things. I used to get really concerned about it. <laughs> so it like stress so, you out just hanging out with other kids? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, my teachers apparently would often find me kind of snuck away in the corner or, you know, not, not really socialising <laughs> with other people because they were just, you know, they're like monsters to me. <laughs> <laughs> but you were a kid. Yeah, exactly. I I don't really remember. That's hilarious. It, but yeah, it's it's quite quite ironic. <laughs> that that seems like a pretty good starting reason to why you wouldn't want kids if you already hated kids when you were a kid. Yeah. Like I don't think I need anything else to convince people. If I was a kid that hated kids, then how am I gonna feel as an adult about kids? <laughs> yeah. Okay, what's the next big reason? Um, yeah, that kind of developed. Um, so over the course of kind of like my teenage years, I found that, yeah, I struggled to relate to children kind of under the age of 10. I just, I couldn't see them as living creatures. They just felt kind of like <laughs> things. Um, wow. Yeah, and... There was a big mystery in my life for quite a number of years because I've got um, Christian parents and I always felt so uncomfortable about the story of the Virgin Mother Mary. Yeah, it just, from like, your it, point of view. Yeah, it, well, it made something in me feel really, really disgusted and I couldn't figure it out for a long time. Um, until probably a couple of years ago when I came across a term, um, it's known as tocophobia. And it's actually, it's, uh, um, it's a pathological fear of pregnancy and babies, basically. Mm. So, so I, I, I haven't been diagnosed, but I relate to a lot of people who have. Okay. Um, they talk mm -hmm. about how if they see a, like they see someone who's pregnant and there's one comment that comes to mind um on a forum <laughs> and um this person said you know don't point that thing at me bitch and they're talking about um, the mother's <laughs> pregnant stomach and i was like i relate to that so much <laughs> <laughs> that's like the exact opposite of so much of society i bet if you've told most people that they'll probably get a little bit like butthurt about it huh oh absolutely i I tend to keep it very much to myself because I know it is a very unpopular opinion. It doesn't go with oh, yeah. anything that society teaches women. So it's kind of been a 
it's a, been a developing story of my own, just keeping it kind of on the DL. Um, but it's definitely something yeah. that I've figured out now. Yeah, I mean, that's probably a good thing to figure out when you're young, because then in terms of at least like dating and stuff, you'll be able to pick out partners who also don't want kids. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and the problem is with having having such a clear idea about something in your life when you're this young is that a lot of other people don't have like the same kind of anchors that you do. So, you know, me being child-free, I don't want kids, I hate them, they're gross, pregnancy is disgusting, it feels <laughs> foul. Yeah. Um, yeah, screw it. Don't, don't, don't touch me with that shit. Um, yeah. people, you know, people that are, you know, 20, 21, even, um, the older up to like 25, um, guy I dated recently who's 25. He said, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure I want to like close that door yet. You know, I, I quite mm -hmm. like the thought of, you know, later down the track, um, me having, having, you know, kids of my own mini me's kind of running around and I just, I hate I was, that. Yeah, that's was, a terrible um, reason. What? <laughs> I was I was so confused when he said that. I was like, oh, hold yeah. on. <laughs> so you wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> so were you dating for a while and he dropped that bomb or was it like a just the, the funny thing is I actually asked him out. So <laughs> that was a bit awkward. <laughs> that sucks. Um, yeah. uh, we weren't dating for very long, but I knew him for a little while. Um, we were friends for a little while before I asked him out. Um, but yeah, I was, I was, he was uncomfortable by the fact that I didn't want kids. He kind of did, but wasn't really sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was like, Hey, can, you're 25, bro. Just make up your mind. Um, right. Well, what's funny about just that whole situation about choosing whether or not to have kids is just the fact that because society tells people to have kids, like that's the, it's not an, like having kids in our society right now isn't an opt-in situation. From societal's view, it's almost an opt-out situation because what you're doing is so contrary to what everybody else does and what everyone else teaches. In terms of the opting out, it really relies on having something inside you that is forcefully telling you that you can't do that. And that's what it is for me. Like I- Because it's an I active could decision. not be, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so many people don't have that clear reason to not have kids. So they just go, oh, I don't want to close that door yet. Or, oh, you know, I could see myself being a parent, you know. I think for a lot of those people, they just haven't really given enough thought yet because the people who know that they're child free for most of their life, at least from what I can tell from my own research and like reading some of the stories on the subreddit about it is that it is such an active decision that you have to be prepared every single time that you're going to have sex. You need to be like ready so that way you don't have kids. And like you also need to pick partners who would either obviously not want to have kids with some with a girl or just want to like. Yeah, absolutely. Work. It's very much um, making conscious decisions to pursue um, the lifestyle that you want. Because, yeah, in the view of society, having kids is a natural thing that everyone does. So if you don't do that, you're immediately um, just basically skewing life as we know it. And you've got to be prepared for every single situation that comes about in your new life path. Yeah, because a lot of, but that also changed, because it does change a lot of things. Because just when I've been 
considering the option of never having kids. Um, the more that I think about it, the more that I realize how much more my life opens up if I don't have kids, like how much more I could focus on my own life and what uh, achievements or places or things I want to do rather than having kids and then basically my life ends. I, that, that rings true very much with me because I lost, well, I feel like I lost um, quite a bit of um, my childhood, my teenage years through um, some ex abuse I experienced. Um, so mm. I'm very much kind of nurturing and self-parenting myself now. Um, what does that mean? I have to parent someone else as well would, um, oh, there's, in terms of emotionally and mentally, there's a lot of work I have to do because I haven't learnt the kind of skills that a lot of people have in terms of identifying um, identifying emotion and regulating it. Um, mm. So my mum was always quick to anger. Um, she's very, very loud um, and she was often physical as well. So as a very young child, I kind of learnt that that was the way that you can do things. So now I'm having to unlearn a lot of things that I got from my parents. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because that definitely because a lot of things that our parents teach us are new ways that we're screwed up. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so and that's that's also a big concern for me. Because even if I didn't actively not want kids, um, I still wouldn't want to pass those things down because it, it is a cycle. It, it just keeps going. All the things yeah. that the parent can't solve is passed on. Yeah, it's funny how people think that they're going to be able to raise their kids better. And I think for a lot of families, that's achievable. But there's always going to be some ways that you're going to screw your kids up that you like a completely new way that they weren't expecting. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's impossible to plan for every single situation. Yeah. And a lot of parents aren't really ready for their kids to be their own person. Right. Yeah. That's the nature of life is you gotta, you, if you're going to become a parent and I think this needs more active choice in society right now is if you're going to become an active parent, you need to accept the fact that eventually this person that you created is their own person and whatever choices they make in their life, you can't control. And you just have to, you just have to hope as the parent that they're using what you taught them to be the best person that they can be, but they still have to make their own mistakes and they have to choose how, the life that they want to live. Like, um, as a parent, eventually you do have to take away control and say, all right, well, now this is, this is your life. Um, make it, you know, make it yours. We, we've had some good ideas so far on why not to have kids. Is there any other ones that we haven't talked about so far? I'd say it's also because society kind of paints it as being selfish. You know, you're so self-involved that you can't give to someone else. And going on with that, you know, you, you can kind of see it as that because a really good reason for not having kids is um, basically just living your life. Um, yeah. So just being able to have the energy and the time to work on yourself and, you know, work on your career, um, earn plenty of money. <laughs> You know, some kind yeah, of selfish that's thing, thing I was travel thinking. around. 
it's selfish yeah, obviously. to what moral extent is not having kids unselfish because or or what level is it selfish because in some ways i think not having kids is an unselfish act if you just consider the fact that odds are if you have children in this world right now either you're not going to be for certain countries you're not going to be able to afford to like take care of them and give them a very good life and even if you are able to give them a very good life then maybe you should consider doing that with some adopted kids because a lot of children stay in the foster system their whole life when you if you could have just given them a better life instead of having your own kids then they could live a good it's life it's definitely an ethical dilemma there's there's no real solution to it because if people just don't have kids and do that and adopt up all the all the children that need to be adopted like that's that's a finite supply that that finishes eventually probably work now lifetimes, but eventually it will. Um, so then what do you do? <laughs> well, I think the conversation changes yeah, at that it's, point. Yeah, it's really strange. I don't, I don't know if you could give me legitimate reasons, like convince me that, uh, that having your own child is m ethically more correct than creating your Personally, own. Personally, I agree. <laughs> um, <laughs> Just because, yeah, like, there are so many kids in the world that are in need that it would just be so easy just to say, well, instead of having this person, which is legally mine and biologically mine, I can step over here and go and take this person who's already here and they're still legally mine. <laughs> After all, I mean, it's not, yeah, I mean, you're not legal. I, I know what you mean by legally, but it's just funny how you said that. Like, it sounds like they're your slave. <laughs> yeah, well, that's something I've kind of encountered in the um, adoption versus biological debate is, you know, people who really want biological kids, they can't quite explain why they want biological kids. You know, if you have a biological child versus if you adopt a baby, mm -hmm. you're still having the same amount of time with them um you know like nothing really changes except for the fact that they might have different genes to you see that's the thing that that comes with our natural biological uh feelings like a lot of people they have that urge to have their children they also have this idea that isn't true that their genetics are superior so they should be creating children like probably some successful guy is going to be like well i'm going to have a lot of kids uh, we could even take, for example, Genghis Khan, like he had like 2% of the world's current population is related to him because he had hundreds, if not thousands of babies because he thought his genetics were the best. Yeah, and um, that's also because it's, it's very instinctual to want to, um, to want the baby bread. Yeah, instinctual. Um, spread yourself. Yeah. Um, and also that's something I've seen um, in the child-free community is all these people are actually considering the consequences of their genes. So, you know, people with um, things that can be hereditary, like um, ADHD, um, various forms of autism, stuff like that, will go, well, I don't want to have children because I don't want to pass down the same struggles that I have. Yeah, that's a good point. And even with that, is the there... child-free community, the yeah, they... Yeah. Cause, well, because within when you're pat having new kids, 
uh, trauma can also be genetically passed. So you can get drama trauma from your parents. Yeah, it's the, it's that theory of genetic memory and then also the mm -hmm. nature versus nurture kind of thing. Um, so yeah, you can easily pass down um, and basically learn your children um, habits that you have or even, yeah, pass it down directly through through the genes. It's a really weird concept, actually. Right. Or you could be more susceptible to something like anxiety, and then the way that you're raised, even if your parents do a good job, could bring out that anxiety your entire life. Study that concluded that um, alcohol abuse is actually, I think, 30% genetic. Oh. That's, like, that's a massive chunk of it. You know, if you think about um, the the genotype versus environment debate, that is a massive chunk of it that comes directly from your DNA rather than how um, the environment um, basically influences you. Yeah, that's got to be so hard because alcohol is just so bad for I've you. I've actually been doing quite a bit of reading about that. Um, and it's really interesting to see um how because alcohol isn't really considered a drug in um general society but it really is because um obviously it's something we have to study for um for flight school um a range of different mm. um stimulants and depressants because pretty much all of them are not allowed 100 percent um when flying so we have to know kind of what the effects are and why they're not allowed and it's really interesting how destructive alcohol is as a drug compared to a lot of other drugs that socially are considered worse. And just how much more abusive you can be on alcohol. Yeah, absolutely. Because it is um, it is regulated to a point, but it's still very easily accessible. For example, in New Zealand, yeah. um, if you're underage, so the drinking, um, drinking age is 18 in New Zealand. Um, if you're underage, you can get it if you're parents buy it for you and if they consider it to be a safe environment so if you're at a family dinner and you're 16 and your aunt passes you a glass of wine and says why not you know it's christmas or whatever let's have a drink hmm. yeah i actually took a trip to spain a couple of years ago and you could buy alcohol basically at any age like as long as you looked like a teenager they would let you buy alcohol without even looking at an id or anything yeah, um, the carding um, processes in New Zealand have become a lot more strict in the last 10 years just because of that fact. You know, if you look you look around 18, they just go, ah, oh, it's too much effort, too much time to, you know, ask you to get your ID out and everything, mm -hmm. it'd be fine. But they've had to really stamp out that mindset because, yeah, alcohol is very damaging, especially when, you know, you're still in the de um, developmental stages, even up until you're, right. you know, 22, 23, your body is still, your body and your brain are still working on things. And how much more easily would it be for somebody who came from a bad family to just be susceptible to drinking a lot of alcohol from a very young age? It's, it's much higher. And that would be definitely something worrisome. Absolutely. And that's where like the ball just keeps rolling and it just keeps happening. One thing that I was kind of thinking about with being child free is the fact that so many people just in this world, when they do have kids, they don't spend enough time with them. <laughs> mm, I agree. Um, 
personally, um, oh, okay. Before the lockdown, the coronavirus lockdown, I would say that yeah. that's a, Discluding um, a that. product. Yeah, yeah. It would be a product of the capitalist society, you know, um, in order to get enough money to support their kids through, you know, through their teenage years and possibly even through university afterwards as well. Um, so, you know, parents just don't have the time. But now that I've seen um, how parents are handling the lockdown, there are some really good examples of um, parents doing really well with their kids in the lockdown, but there are also yeah. some really bad examples. <laughs> oh yeah. I actually saw this Facebook post from, it was like a mom. It was some of the, one of the moms that I grew up in the same neighborhood as I can't remember. I remember knowing one of their kids, but she had made this post talking about how her kids were driving her crazy and that she couldn't wait for school to come back. And I'm like, um, didn't you choose to have that kid in the first place? Like, I know yeah. that you're stuck with them once you have them. I get that. And I know that it's difficult to, hard, to raise kids, especially every day. But at the same time, having that mindset is very negative. And imagine if your kids saw that and they're like, oh, so you don't actually like spending time. Yeah, with and that's a product of the out of children star society that you kind of mentioned earlier. That's a direct impact of that people go well i have to have kids and then all of a sudden they realize that maybe they're just not quite made for it i think that there are definitely people in this world who are made to have children. oh yeah absolutely um uh, my manager 100 percent made to be a father he like mm. he's heaps of fun he's so understanding he's like he's always got time and effort to spend on someone and his kids they're they they're energetic as all hell i know they scream their heads off and you know they run around like little pork chops you know whenever i see them they come into the store they are the most well-behaved little people and they have their own little personalities they have the things they like and they're happy to talk and they're really enthusiastic but yeah they're not running around the store screaming that that's so great yeah because that there's definitely people in this world who have a natural gift for children. I mean, I would even say that I fall under that. In terms of being an actual parent, that's a different story, but just kids tend to gravitate to me and I gravitate to them. But they're, they're you know, for every dad who's like that, there are tons of dads who, the second they ha might have a kid, they just leave or they don't treat their kids very well or they start drinking or something there's, like that. There's, in terms of like the gender spread, there's very much um, in males, the tendency to, just kind of stack when a situation becomes too much. Um, mm -hmm. It's quite interesting to see um, in terms of if you look at the spread of, or kind of the, um, even the stereotypes of what happens when you, know, you, have a, you have a child. A lot of the time it's kind of the single mother. That's the stereotype. Um, because yeah, right. the father isn't prepared enough um, and just steps back. Yep. And then that screws up the kid forever. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wanted a son to play baseball with kind of thing. What was Sorry. that? Sorry. <laughs> um, the Hollywood trope of the, the dad wanting, wanting the son, but getting the girl. Mm. You know, it's, yeah. You know, I wanted my, I wanted a son to play baseball with, or, you know, kick a football around in our backyard. And instead I got this, you know, emotional little girly thing that you know i can't relate to at all 
Right. Or, and they have completely different interests or it's a daughter, God forbid, in some cultures. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I saw recently a documentary on um, the population spread in both China and India, who mm-hmm. um, about 20 or 30 years ago, both these countries had um, had um, societies based on um, males. They said, mm-hmm. we want sons, we want boys, we want males, we don't want females. And it actually became common practice to abort um, female fetuses. Wow, that's horrible. Absolutely. But the problem that they're seeing now is that they don't have enough women. So, you know, the older generations of women are retiring and dying out, but they don't have enough new generations of women coming in. So now they're kind of stuck in this really awkward in-between phase where the consequences of their own actions are definitely catching up with them. Mm -hmm. Well, and like there's a whole generation of boys growing up who are probably going to have zero chance of actually finding a girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, um, and it's really interesting to see how they tried to solve that problem because um, particularly in China, buying wives has been has become a very common thing to do. So if you're a, you're a dad and your son needs a wife and you have plenty of money, then you go and spend, you know, $10,000 on, you know, a little Vietnamese lady to be your son's wife. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Vietnam Vietnam to basically sell girls as wives. It's quite disgusting, actually. Oh, yeah. And you know that the wife is going to hate her life. Like, eventually, that son's probably going to grow up to be a huge brat or incel or something. No matter what really happens to them, they're still forced into the traditional life of um, the nuclear family with husband, the wife, and three kids. Mm-hmm. So whether they want to or not, you know, they're, they're stuck with it, basically. Yeah. Why would they do... Is, is Vietnam just that much more poor than China? Um, not that it's, it's not an economical kind of thing. It's like, um, it's not directly between, um, the countries as nations. It's more kind of under the radar. No, where, I think like from the person's point of view. Um, I suppose you could say that. Um, I mean, in Vietnam, it's definitely, it's, in, it's not just encouraged, but it's, pretty much um, regulated the fact that, you know, as a woman, you need to find a husband, settle down and have children for him, for him, Mm. just with him. Um, So that's where the cultures, you know, between India and Vietnam and Thailand, that's where the cultures kind of line up really nicely to be able to foster this kind of behaviour, I guess. Yeah, because that's like, it, it must be a much better situation if you're a, a single Vietnamese woman to marry some rich dude in China than it is to actually have to find a mate within Vietnam. It's such a shame, though. It's, it's, it's such a waste of, a, of, a cult, of an entire generation of women who could be doing such great things for the world. Wouldn't it be so much better just to adopt even children from other countries rather than having your own kids? And who needs, who needs to like be contributing to such a, 
a sexist way of um, life. One of my best friends, um, her and her sister were um, adopted from an orphanage and the parents couldn't have kids together, so they decided they would adopt. Um, and oh. they're a lovely they little families. Um, so the parents are from America and the, uh, the two girls are from southern China. Oh, interesting adopting kids from China because there's a lot of orphans out there in China, which is kind of funny considering that they have such a problem with this like lack of child production that they forced on themselves. Yeah, it, it is really strange how um, all, all these mistakes kind of come together to make a really screwed up society. Yeah, because China yeah, sucks. I mean, I hate China. Every <laughs> I've ranted about China to so many people <laughs> over the course of my life because I'm just like, every you know, this is probably though, this is just karma coming back to them for forcing that one child policy on their country because I think maybe like a two or three child policy would be all right, but one child, that's that definitely screwed a lot of families in terms of they had to like kill their own babies or hide them or like just kill all the girls until they had a son? Um, yeah, well, gender roles um, are still so heavily regulated in um, Western countries that nothing's really changed um, if you compare them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, people people are still being forced into that, um, into that life story of um, either I'm, I'm a man, I've just graduated uni, I need to find a wife, settle down, buy a house and have kids. Or I'm a woman, I need to find a man, settle down, buy a house and have kids. I, think I just said something quite controversial then. <laughs> I, yeah, because so much of society is based around like this idea of having kids, building like your little house together, man goes to work woman stays home and cooks all day, and then it's like an actual happy family. But the truth is, that was never the really a great way to go about things because, I mean, there's a reason we had all those riots in the 70s just about like freedom of women and everything because they realized how dumb that whole system really it's is. It's not that the people in third world countries don't want to change things. It's just that they physically can't. The states actually have, like these nation states, have been um, putting um, legal restrictions on this kind of thing for decades. They know how to do it. They know mm -hmm. how they can um, restrict their population. And a big part of that comes from not letting people have abortions. Um, the social narrative has flipped completely. So yeah, 30, 40 years ago, you need an abortion because you had a female fetus go for it you know <laughs> have as, as many as abortions as you feel like but now um women who need abortions even for medical reasons are having to go you know kind of black market style to you know yeah. just to kind of save their own lives even in certain u.s states people are having to drive to mexico to get abortions from third world doctors who probably don't have as much safety regulations. It's really crazy. Yeah, looking at the development of the United States over the last four years has <laughs> honestly like it makes me feel physically sick. <laughs> yeah, it's it's almost like we opened Pandora's box and every possible bad thing that could be happening in the world is currently happening in 2020, but especially since when Donald Trump got elected. Yeah, I think it all started there. <laughs> but yeah, like, um, 
viewing it from um, little old New Zealand down next to Antarctica, um, <laughs> it's like it, it honestly just blows my mind what um, these senators and governors are doing because um, they basically have free rule over, from my opinion, over um, their That's own crazy. areas. Yeah. And they so, can like you know, gerrymander. They can they can change the the uh, voting districts within their states to stay in power as long as possible. That's the first I've heard of it, and to me that that's immediately like no, that's unlawful. That's it. You can't have that. That's just bullcrap. <laughs> I mean, if we keep going down the route that we're currently going down, the U.S. is going to fail at some point and like collapse or something. It's going to be wild, but I don't know how long that would take to happen. But New Zealand is looking pretty dang good. Your your prime minister, who funny enough is actually, she's an ex Mormon, so she used to be Mormon. Uh, she's like awesome. Yeah, I I don't vote um, because I get way too angry about politics. But <laughs> when Jacinda Ardern was elected in, and when she was running, I thought, yeah, she's a reason. You no, know, yeah, she seems alright. This is a little bit sexist because I kind of went, oh, is she going to be able to, you know, push for these things? How and then, you know, within the year, I know, I know. How dare <laughs> I as a woman and a feminist? <laughs> yeah. If you were a man um, and you just said that, I would totally edit yeah, that out. You can't. Just to save your name. Oh, I'm definitely leaving this now. <laughs> but um, within the year of her getting elected, um, her major promise was to get um, tuition fees completely free for all first years. And she did that within the year. Nice. And I, I kind of help? helped me, not very much, because my tuition fees are massive. But to, you know, 80% of the studying population, it is like a godsend. Nice. So when that happened, I I was immediately, you know, 100% Jacinda Ardern, you are my god kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And hasn't she handled the corona really yeah, good, Yeah, there's too? been a lot of um, debate on whether she actually came down too harshly. But if you look at the kind of runaway that you're getting in um, the US and the EU, it's it's really clear that... Yeah, I think we just hit a million, uh, a million infected people. Yeah. Uh, it's honestly, it's insane. It really she's is. Really, she's really put a name to New Zealand. It's kind of weird how that's happened yeah. now. You know, she's we're just you know a tiny little little section of the Pacific Ocean, and everyone's talking about how New Zealand has handled it handled it so well. Just because Jacinda had she basically had the balls to say, well, no, we're going to get rid of this before it even starts. She's definitely been criticised for it um, in terms of if she came down too hard because. Um, New Zealand's defi definitely taken an economical hit from it. But um, I think our maximum number of cases, like total, has been about 1,600. Yeah, that's not bad at all. Well, just in terms of talking about the economy, um, you know, the U.S. isn't necessarily experiencing an economic downfall yet. It is, it is, but just not as big as it could be. But as soon as the all these unemployed people, that actually hits the market, which takes about 90 days, we're going to feel it and a lot of the world is going to feel it. And so maybe New Zealand is taking the toll now, but give it six months or whatever and everything's back to normal. At least you'll be way ahead of the curve. Yeah, absolutely. Because now we look, you know, kind of bad because, you know, we've just taken 75% of our workforce out. 
But yeah, in three months' time, when New Zealand's back on its feet and it's pretty much, you know, just a little island of sanity where everyone else mm-hmm. is, you know, just basically lost in the coronavirus. Yeah, probably in 90 days, the US will look like that one SpongeBob meme where everyone's on fire and he's running around in circles. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, um, it, has, it's, it has been really interesting to see kind of um, the development of it because it is a global crisis. Um, and, you know, these are the kinds of things that people our age, we see them in history books that we go, well, if I was there, I would have done this. But, you know, mm-hmm. we're right in the middle of it now. We're going, oh, shit, we can't actually do anything. Yeah, it's not up to us. It's up to, like, a couple people. I mean, literally, if Donald Trump had decided different actions with it, just himself, we probably would be doing much better. It pisses me off to no end because um, my parents um, often watch the live streams of Donald Trump speaking um, and addressing, you know, the United States. Well, my joke is that every time I hear his voice, I lose three IQ points. (laughs) Just hearing this man's voice makes me dumb. That's why I'm wondering, like, why on earth you would even listen to it. Because I like listening to the funny snippets where he says something that digs himself into a deeper hole. But... Most of it is just... Yeah, and, you know, my parents laugh at it because, um, you know, what he's talking about is it's just absolute bullshit. He he has no clue how anything works in politics. He's just trying to cover his own ass constantly. And it's like, we have so many jokes. Yeah, because, you know, we have so many jokes. (laughs) My mum goes, you know... All right, I've got I've got the best dinner in all of this country. We have the best dinner. It's gonna be the greatest dinner since all dinners. And you know, it's it's just a huge joke now. Damn it, that sucks for America though, because we're gonna look like a bunch of idiots. But the United States is just yeah, from the outside, like. I guess we already are. <laughs> But, um, I mean, I, hell, we import every good thing about America is imported from a different country. Elon Musk, all of our best actors, all that <laughs> stuff. Like even freaking Parasite won the Oscars and like all these country white folk were offended that a South Korea movie would win the Oscars, even though the Oscars is an American thing. And I'm like, well, maybe you guys should stop selling out to China and actually make good movies for once. Um, I read a um, quite an interesting um, comment that was basically likened um, the current state of the United States to the fall of Rome and basically the destruction of the Roman Empire. <laughs> and it, it was funny, but it felt a little bit too realistic. <laughs> you know, that'll really happen when we like go to war with Mexico or Canada or something like we become extra imperial. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just waiting. Oh, well, last year, everyone's waiting for, you know, someone to press the button and launch some missiles at, you know, either South Korea or U S because yeah. it was, mm-hmm. you know, it was, honestly, it was just insane. Didn't he just die though? Kim Jong-un? Not very old, is he? Uh-uh. He's like 30, but. I've seen a lot of memes lately. He had a heart surgery, and apparently he went into a coma after. And everyone thinks he might be dead. And the North Korea isn't just—they're just not publishing it yet until they find a replacement. But nobody knows for sure. Oh yeah, I'm really—I'm so surprised Donald Trump hasn't brought that up in one of the you know the national addresses. 
It's because Fox probably doesn't even care. Like, it's not official yet, so they shouldn't say anything, or else Trump will probably literally start sending troops over there to take it over. Yeah, yeah, he'll be like, you know, America, the United States is the best. <laughs> we have the best handle on coronavirus, and King John has just died because of it. <laughs> we have won. I can imagine it right now. He's like... He's like, their walls aren't big enough, man. you got to build bigger walls so you don't let coronavirus into your country. I know this because I saw it on Fox News this morning. <laughs> the state of the world. You know, that's another good reason not to have kids, too, is just shit is starting to hit the fan really hard within everything of the world. Like, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. Even Kobe died. When Kobe died, I knew that something was wrong. And this whole year has proved that. We yeah, we're even, in the wrong timeline. <laughs> we really, like, someone, someone's screwed with, like, the matrix that we're in, and they turned the dial a little bit too far for insanity, because I'm, I'm pretty sure that we're in a matrix. <laughs> we're surprised, honestly, the way this year is going. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny, because it's the people in the child-free community are the people that are seeing that. People complaining about, oh, my friend's trying to get pregnant, you know, right now. Like, seriously? Yeah, it it's, seems like kind like, of a bad it's, time it's really to insane. It kind of baffles me the fact that the child-free community has more of a handle on, you know, parenthood than anyone else seems to. Yeah. Well, it's because they understand that maybe taking like let's let's dump a little bit into antinatalism it's this philosophical principle that having kids is inherently a bad thing like that there's a negative value assigned to birth because right now in society birth is considered a good thing i mean people celebrate like bridal or um pregnancy like they'll have parties before when you're pregnant and then they'll celebrate on facebook that they had children but maybe considering just maybe that having children is actually maybe a bad thing and that suffering is guaranteed no matter how good you treat your child, that suffering is inherently wrong and that maybe having children is wrong because you're forcing, because at some point, no matter how good you are or how good of a parent or whatever, your kid is going to experience some suffering. So their idea is that suffering is worse than not. Yeah, existing. it's kind of funny how... Um... I mean, it's based on how you define um, happiness versus pain. So if you say that, you know, one moment of pain is um, is worse than having, you know, the rest of your lifetime in happiness, well, to some people that kind of equates and it says, well, I shouldn't have to suffer ever. I should be happy. That would be great, mm -hmm. honestly. Like, I want that yeah. too. You know, um, more realistically, you have to say, well, you know, everyone's going to experience some moments of pain and suffering, but majority, it needs to be happiness. So it's very much where you're coming from in terms of how you look at this equation between suffering and happiness. Yeah, and it's definitely a very cynical philosophy because you're discounting all the greatness like all the good things that can happen in life. I mean, for me, a, some good food is such an enjoyable thing that it almost makes all the rest of life worth living. Oh, I, I think I agree with you on that. I love 
And the problem with antinatalism is it has no solution, mm -hmm. no practical solution. You can sit there and consider it hypothetically until, you know, your hair grows grey. But the problem is, is that how do you apply it to, you know, a real world? Yeah, and why is, why is the end of humanity worth considering when you're, because true antinatalism would be forcing the entire world to not have any more children, like ending the human race. But yeah. maybe, but I don't necessarily agree with that because I think the the problem is that humanity could become better. I mean, at least, like, yeah, it sucks. And it, it, it could nuke itself in the next 10 years and then it's all not worth it, you know? But odds are we're going to make it through everything and we're going to end up being served by like robots and then we won't have to do anything and then we can just do whatever we want and we don't have to work or anything that would almost be worth a goal worth striving towards rather than just ending yeah definitely um it's when you are playing with um with theory like this and you're trying to apply it to an abstract form as human race and its societies it is it's so difficult to just put an infinite um, variable on there and say, well, this is just, um, this is, figure it out. You don't have to um, analyze the consequences in, in 20, 30, 100 years because it's, just, it's what it is now. But yeah, you know, when the situation changes, um, you've suddenly got to come back to the drawing board and go, well, actually, this isn't working for us anymore. So, right. Yeah, if you change all of society's views towards and you anchor them with antinatalism, is pretty much the direct opposite of what we have now. We're still gonna have issues. There's gonna be different ones. Yeah, that's true. Well, and that's that's why it's a philosophy because I think maybe you could just use that in your own individual life and decide to use that for your own. That's maybe just another reason for opting out of having kids. Kind of balances out because antinatalism is generally um, an unpopular idea. So if you only have a small percentage of um, the population that identifies with it, um, yeah, it, it kind of balances out enough so that you still have the people, you know, reproducing with reproducing with yeah. their own ideas, um, and then you have that small population that isn't. Yeah, I think just being child free, like making that choice for yourself, uh, definitely honorable. And I, I like the fact that it's going against society because a lot of what society does is doing things for the sake of, well, that's how it's always been. Well, when you do things for the sake of that's how it's always been, that's where a lot of humanity's problems come from, like sexism and racism. Not delving into the world's problems. It's so hard to find an actual um, navigable path through them because, you know, things change constantly. Yeah, I mean, you might you might go in your life because I've read some of the posts on Child Free where some people maybe get married to somebody who also doesn't want to have kids. And then like 10 years later, it's usually tends to be the guy, but sometimes it's the girl that's like, actually, I want kids. And then they just go do it. And they're like, bye. Yeah, because so they very much are sacrificing it all that they've built in that relationship because you know all of a sudden that kind of their mind has changed and they've gone hang on a second i'm not going towards where i wanted to go and maybe i didn't know where i wanted to go or i thought this was the right way but now it's not so much mm -hmm. 
And that could definitely happen with having kids too. Like maybe you really enjoy having babies or like young kids, but by the time they're teenagers, you just don't want to be a parent anymore. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I've done my time now, you know, it's, I'm off duty yeah. kind of thing. Or you just, yeah. you know, you get tired. A lot of parents just, they burn out. You know, it's, it's really hard Um, to do. every parent has their own kind of unique set of skills. So some, yeah, some parents love the baby toddler stage. They, you know, they think it's great. It's adorable. But then, you know, myself, I find I relate a lot better to um, kids that are kind of in their teen yeah. years because, you know, they have more of a personality and I can relate to them on a more, on, on an um, intellectual level mm. rather than mm -hmm. a physical level. Would you ever consider... Maybe if you were older and you had fulfilled a lot of your life's dreams, consider adopting like a teenage age child. Yeah, that's something that I've thought of um, in relation to, you know, what if I get to 35 or 40 and, you know, I find that I have this unfulfilled need where, you know, I decided that I want to nurture mm -hmm. a human soul. Well, then my solution to that would be, yeah, I would adopt you know, someone who's 10, 11, 12 and carry through the second half of their childhood. Because um, often um, the older children are the ones that basically get pushed on the wayside because parents, you know, parents want the whole childhood. They want the baby. Mm. They don't want someone who's already spent 10 years on this earth. Or they keep having kids and then the older kids are kind of forced to raise the younger kids, even if they don't want to. That is a worrying prospect is um, in large families when, yeah, these older kids are basically becoming babysitters. So they have to develop all of a sudden and be able to not only provide, you know, things like food, um, stuff like that, but also they end up providing emotionally as well. So that's that's a huge um, tax on someone who isn't really fully developed either. Yeah. I mean, it's not like most 15-year-olds are exactly ready to handle two or three-year-old kids. I mean, they, they kind of know what to do, and it's not that hard to babysit a kid for a couple hours. But if you were forced to do that all the time, use a lot of your free time instead, that that can definitely be hard. And that's something that you just have to give up because you don't have a like choice. These are people that end up suffering in other portions of their lives, like education, and they go into basically the same life path. Um, mm -hmm. you know, they get married at our age and having this. All right. Well, we're hitting two, about two hours here, so we can wrap it up. Do you have anything that you want to promote? While you're Listen for me and be child free. There we go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I, you know, I think if I'm going to, if I bet one person who listens to this is probably going to at least reassess their beliefs on child, on, on ch having children. So definitely a positive thing to get out of this.
Now, now.